Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I'm a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss about the precious metals of gold, silver, and its relationship with war in Chinese history. As an ancient Chinese saying goes, when the world is in chaos, hold gold. Gold is widely accepted as money and a strategic asset. When people seek safe financial havens, prices of precious metals like gold and silver usually rise. In early August, spot prices for gold soared to an historical high of more than two thousand U.S. dollars an ounce. This year, the price increase of silver exceeded that of gold, and many analysts believed that the rise of silver prices would continue to outpace that of gold prices. Although the prices of both gold and silver fell in the following days, they still remain high. While gold consumption was down in China and abroad, gold investment skyrocketed in the first half of the year. In 2013, bargain-hunting middle-aged and elderly Chinese women rushed to buy gold at very low prices. The purchasing power of the unusual consumer group, known as Da Ma in Chinese. Is credited for pushing up gold prices on the international market. The recent essence of gold and silver, however, was mainly driven by loose monetary policies of central banks and uncertainties of global economic prospects. Historically, gold and silver are much more than indicators of troubled times. They have changed the world. This is particularly true for China, as silver brought both wealth and war to the country. Liu Che, a Chinese emperor of the Han Dynasty during the second century BCE, once rewarded his army with one hundred thousand kilograms of gold. The army, led by the famed general Wei Qing, had defeated the Huns. Throughout Chinese history, there are records of rulers. Handing out rewards in gold in units of jin, or five hundred grams. But were there that much gold in ancient China? Many historians have their doubts and suggest it was actually copper. However, if Emperor Liu Che promised to award gold, but actually gave copper, would his generals and soldiers have risked their lives for his dynasty? Clues to the answers for this question come from the emperor's grandson, Liu He. In 2016, antiques from Liu He's tomb were exhibited at the Capitol Museum in Beijing. The exhibition attracted 300,000 visitors, and most were drawn to the array of gold in various shapes, from bullion to horseshoes. The hoard of gold is a surprise, considering Liu He only sat on the throne for only twenty-seven days and died at the age of thirty-three. From this, it is reasonable to conclude 
that gold was widely used in ancient China. A similar surprise came from ancient Egypt. Even more gold was found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, the Parol who 3,300 years ago died at the age of 19 of unknown causes. He did not have an impressive reign, which is why when British archaeologist Howard Carter discovered his grave in 1922, most did not expect to find much wealth inside. Of course, they were wrong. A gold mask was found in his grave that has since become an iconic symbol of the ancient Egyptians. In addition, more than 1,000 items were found in his grave, including gold coffers, a gold throne with gems and gold statues. These treasures are now housed in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, one of the most visited museums in the world. No exchange between the East and the West is recorded during Tutankhamun's reign, but many cultures, both in the East and the West, surrounded their sovereigns with gold for their journey to the afterlife. The first direct contact between the Eastern and the Western civilizations was made by the conquest of Europe, Asia, and Africa by the Macedonian ruler Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE. The impact can be seen in the Hellenistic influence on ancient Buddhist imagery in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Northern India. Another important mark is the trail of gold coins his army left along the ancient Silk Road. From the mid-19th century to early 1930s, the gold standard prevailed in the world's major economies, including Britain and the United States. The stability and the value of their currencies were backed by gold. The Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944 set up the global monetary and trading system. The currencies of major economies were packed to the U.S. dollar, and the value of the U.S. dollar was fixed by gold. In 1971, U.S. President Richard Nixon declared that the U.S. dollar would detach from gold and gold dollar convertibility would stop. Thus, the gold standard came to an end. The gold standard has never been adopted in China. Instead, silver standard prevailed for a long time. The reason for the beginning and end of the silver standard in China has roots in Europe and the Americas. Even today, Chinese people refer to money in general as silver. The popularity of silver in China comes from the discovery of the New World. Since Spain's exploration and conquest starting in the 15th century, a massive amount of silver was extracted from the American continents. Three Spanish-run mines, one in Peru and two in Mexico, produced more silver than the rest of the world combined. This wealth founded the capitalism in Europe, which became the most developed region in the world. China had imposed a closed-door policy since the beginning of the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century. In the latter part of the 16th century, Ming Emperor Longqing allowed sea trade with the Southeastern Asia 
through a route known as the Manila Galeen, which linked China and Europe via the Philippines. One-third of the silver found in the New World flowed from Europe into China for silk, tea, and porcelain. The huge influx of silver impacted China's interactions with the West, as well as reforms at home. Ming Prime Minister Zhang Zhizheng launched a nationwide fiscal campaign. By the latter part of the 16th century, all taxes and conscript labor were priced and settled in silver. Without wide use of silver as currency, such reforms would not have been possible, and the reform consolidated the dominance of silver as the national currency. While silver from European colonies in America boosted capitalism in Europe, it also set the stage for capitalism in China. Silver, as a medium of exchange, facilitated transactions not only in China's market, but also between the East and the West. The rising demand for consumption and trade became a driving force for development of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution. The world entered into a globalized trading system, arguably silver's largest contribution to human history. However, silver also brought war. Silver made Europeans the largest consumer of luxuries like silk, tea, and spice from the East, mainly China, India, and Indonesia. Britain rose as the most powerful country in Europe. While its colonies provided various products, there was one thing that it had to import from China, tea. Britain's East Indian Company previously tried to grow tea in Goa, India, but failed. So silver continued to flow into China through the tea trade. But then Britain found another product to exchange for tea with China, opium. China's trade surplus immediately disappeared. A huge deficit was generated. Opium addictions ravaged Chinese society. In 1839, Lin Zexu was designated by the Qing Emperor to ban opium in Guangzhou. The result was a war between China and Britain the next year, known as the First Opium War. It was the beginning of China's long humiliation by Western powers for a century. The war was triggered by the opium trade, but had roots in the competition for silver. The end of the World War I saw the decline of the British sterling and the rise of the U.S. dollar. However, the U.S. was mired in the Great Depression from 1929 to 1933 due to the strong demand for gold in the major economies on the gold standard. Gold was in short supply on the market. To get out of the economic depression and build its currency on a wider basis, the U.S. adopted a bimetallic standard. The dollar was backed by three-quarters of gold's reserve and one-quarter of silver reserve. Silver was much cheaper and more abundant on the market than gold. To keep the U.S. dollar stable, the ratio of the gold and silver had to be secured. The U.S. began to snap up silver around the world, driving up silver prices, 
Economies on silver standards saw a massive outflow of silver, which caused deflation. The country hit the hardest was China, which had been on a silver standard. By early 1935, China was running out of silver coins, and its economy on the brink of collapse. The nationalist government decided to abandon silver and shift to a fiat money system. China and the U.S. reached an agreement that the U.S. would purchase silver from China and provide loans to China. So fiat money was backed by foreign exchanges, which was the U.S. dollar. The British government also supported the reform and initially sought to back the new Chinese currency with a sterling, but failed. To promote the fiat money, the Chinese government nationalized silver, but failed to implement the policy in the northern part of the country, which was largely controlled by local warlords. After invading the northeastern provinces in 1931, Japan tried to separate the northern region from China in the following years. Japan encouraged and urged Chinese warlords in the northern provinces to declare autonomy and expel military and administrative institutions of the nationalist government. The Chinese government announced its fiat money policy in early November 1935. It marks an open, complete break between China and Japan on the economic front. Japan sped up the pace of realizing autonomy of the Chinese northern provinces. Silver there was not submitted to the Chinese central bank, but was acquired by Japan. On December 9 of that year, college and middle school students in Beijing took to the street to protest Japan's invasion and the Chinese government's concession to Japan. The protest, known as the December 9th movement, spread to other cities around China. 18 months later, China and Japan were engaged in total war, which ended in 1945. The times of gold and silver standards have gone. There were debates on whether gold standard should return in the aftermath of the global financial crisis of 2008. Now, digital currencies are on the rise. But what will they be based on? Will it be gold? That is the end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer Song Yimin, editor and translator Li Jia, and copy editor JT. We hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening. See you next week.